Going beyond the headlines? Getting to the heart of the story. Calgary Today with Joe McFarland on 770 CHQR. Nice to see another sunshiny day. Thanks so much for spending your afternoon with us. Looking forward to this conversation because if you were with me earlier this week, we were talking about people who were former smokers and you were passing on suggestions and tips on how you managed to quit smoking. And I think throughout most of that was the idea of self-control or willpower. This half hour, I want to delve into really how does self-control work? Marco Palma, Associate Professor of Agricultural Economics and Director Human Behavior Laboratory, Texas A&M University, joins us today. Hello, Marco. Hi, thanks for having me. Now, we have reached Marco, who is holidaying with his family in Honduras, Central America. So bear with us for the phone line. But I thought this was such a good topic. I wanted to reach him wherever he was. Marco, can we interchange willpower and self-control? Are they similar things? They are very similar. In fact, what we know about self-control is that it's a function that we need to use in our daily lives, whether it's to quit smoking or to keep up with uh, saving enough money for retirement or to keep with medical programs, watching what we eat. I think that the most important issue that has uh, come up in terms of self-control is that one act of self-control initially might affect our subsequent self-control in the future. This is quite significant, and there have been two main theories. One of them states that the more we use self-control initially, it's like a snowball, that it gets bigger and bigger as it rolls down the hill. And so that's really great news. The more you use it, the better you get at it. But there's also another current of research that states that self-control is like a battery. And that once you use up the, the resources of the battery, you burn out. And for decades, we've been pondering which of these two theories that have contradictory results is true. And our research showed that both of them are correct. In other words, if you use some initial self-control and build momentum and traction, that increases your motivation to keep doing certain exercises in self-control. But if you overdo it, then that might actually affect you negatively, and you won't be able to exercise self-control later during the day. Uh, so a perfect example would be if you go to the gym in the morning and you work out mildly, that might help you through the day to stay engaged and keep using that self-control ability. But if you go for two hours and go too long, maybe you burn out. And this explains why at the end of the day, uh, during dinner, we might say, it's okay for me to eat an extra piece of chocolate and I have another, uh, another dessert because I, I deserve it. I, after all, I worked out very hard this morning. So your battery is wearing down there because you used it too much earlier in the day. I want to give my listeners some tools to build up their self-control because some people just say, oh, I've got no self-control, I've got no willpower. And, and I want to go into, well, your human behavior laboratory, how were you able to really look at how self-control works? Well, there were two very important issues that we were able to measure. We were using neurophysiological measures, and the first thing we used was an eye-tracking device to see how people were doing in terms of an initial self-control task, something that required the exertion of self-control. And what we did is that we changed the amount of time that people had to spend doing this, and then we observed how they exercise self-control in a not completely different thing in a secondary task. 
And in the secondary task, we measured their brain activity, particularly in the prefrontal cortex. And we saw how people were driven in the second stage to purchase something that they were not looking for. And their task was to either conserve a $5 a real, $5 cash endowment, or to purchase something sort of like an impulse buying because it was something they were not looking for. And what we found was that the people had some initial small acts of self-control. They were more able to exercise self-control in the future. And this pattern was shown in the prefrontal cortex. Now, when people overdid it and burned out that battery, what happened was that they had a drive to purchase these products and they were not able to exercise self-control and this activity was picked up in their brains. It really sounds like you've got to do this in small amounts. Is that what I'm taking from this? Yes, that's absolutely right. If we set unrealistic goals and they're too big, we lose a lot of motivation because very quickly we find this is too hard, it's difficult to do, and then we, we give up. Uh, it's been shown that nearly 80% of Americans um, lose their, self, their ability to keep up with those goals by February 1st. And I think that part of that is because we start too strong. We say we're going to start eating better, and then we get into diets that might not be realistic or something that might be feasible in Lawrence. That's something that we cannot keep up with. But think about it this way. If you gave up one soda can and one piece of bread, that's nearly 150 calories. And over time, you're going to start losing weight if you do those two things. And more importantly, that you will keep up that motivation and that momentum rolling, and that will serve you to keep trying to exercise that self-control ability, not just in eating, but in any other things in life as well. Is it tough when, as I go back to my conversation earlier this week with listeners, when we were talking about something like smoking and an addiction, is it tougher to do it in small amounts, or is it better to do it cold turkey? Well, every person is different. And in some cases, when it comes to, to quit smoking, that's something that relates to addiction. There are certain paths in our brain that are present that, that really we, we need an extra kind of motivation. And that's something that is not very easily attainable. It's like setting up a goal that you would say, I'm going to run and I'm going to start running, but I'm going to start at five miles a day. Because it's something that is so intrinsic that our brains are uh, convincing us of the necessity that we have to keep that habit. And so for some people, it works best to do it all at once, but also it's important to know that there might be some soup goals that they may be able to attain. So if it's too difficult for somebody to go to cold turkey and quit smoking just one day and say, I'm not going to smoke again, maybe you can set a smaller soup objective. So if you smoke a pack a day, maybe you say, uh, I'm going to set up things that are realistic to me. And there are two ways in which you can do this. You can start stronger. And by, by that, I mean that you can start by saying, I'm going to go from 20 cigarettes a day. And I'm gonna, this week, I'm going to reduce that. And you reduce that amount to, say, 15, which is a reduction of five cigarettes. And then the next week, you might do more than five. So you might say seven more. Uh, or you can start the other way around and say, I'm going to start by, by reducing the amount by by four cigarettes and then try to progressively make that something that will help you keep that momentum and that motivation and say, I, I can do this. Do we see our improvement in self-control in one area? Let's say I'm giving up my cigarette smoking and I'm using self-control to do that. Do I then have stronger self-control in other areas of my life? Is it that whole idea of exercising this self-control? 
Absolutely. And some recent work uh, by Ben Hauser and some of his colleagues have shown that uh, some individuals who routinely uh, exercise acts of self-control by containing themselves of not drinking too much alcohol, he has shown that some of these individuals are more able to exercise self-control in other things in life as well. Enjoy your time with your family in Honduras, Marco. I thank you very much for having me. A Happy New Year. Marco Palma, Associate Professor of Agricultural Economics and Director, Human Behavior Laboratory, Texas A&M University. And now I want to throw it over to you, 403-974-8255. Earlier this week, you guys had such great suggestions when it came to quitting smoking. But I really think we have shifted our approach to making changes in our life. And it's always big changes. But you have these little changes that will lead to some big results. And and I think there's probably a number of you out there who can attest to this. Because what did Marco say? 80% of Americans, so you could probably say similar here in Canada, that by February, whatever they tried to change in January was out the window. And we are making such a huge shift as opposed to saying, okay, what can I do slowly? Even uh, if you were listening to Rob earlier today, um, a great interview with Gary Tobbs, he's the author of The Case Against Sugar. And so it would be great to sit there and say, all right, I'm giving up sugar. Well, wait, how realistic is that? Eventually, yeah, maybe I will be giving up refined sugar, but I want to do it slowly. So 403-974-8255. You know it's the number to call and text. You can always email me as well, Angela at Newstalk770.com. Have you tried this in your life? Or are you the type of person who says, I want to go all in or forget it? We're back after this.